Well, we turn it now again to God's Word, 1 Samuel, chapter 26. And as we turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what we have just taken up in song is our prayer now. For we long to grow in our love of you and our fear of you. We long to draw near to you. And it is in understanding, it is in discerning the most holy learning of your word that those sweet desires are realized. Love and fear and nearness to you. And so we pray that you would bless the ministry of your word now to those ends. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back to 1 Samuel. Last week we looked at chapter 25. And remember what we saw last week, just to get our bearings here. What we saw was David being brought to his senses in the nick of time. Remember that? He was on his way to shed blood had his sword strapped on, 400 of his men had their swords strapped on as well. David was on his way to shed blood. More precisely, he was on his way to wipe out the men of the household of a man named Nabal, and that was David's plan because Nabal had snubbed him, and David's blood was roused, and he wanted his vengeance, and he was on his way to get it, sword strapped on. And just in the nick of time, Abigail gets to him with generous supplies and wise words and godly appeals. And it worked. It was brilliant. And it was masterful. And it all worked. It had the intended effect. It cooled David down. And it brought him to his senses. And it changed his mind. You can almost picture David's white-knuckled grip on his sword beginning to loosen up as Abigail makes her persuasive speech. So David was grateful to Abigail. Above all, he was grateful to God for sending Abigail his way. Remember how David put it. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So it's, it's telling, not just that David was grateful, but that he put it that way. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So that's where we left off last week. This week we pick up with chapter 26. In most of our Bible translations, there's a heading right there at the top of chapter 26 that says something like, David spares Saul again. David spares Saul again. And it says that because, remember, just a few weeks ago, back in chapter 24, David had the chance to strike Saul dead in that cave, but he didn't do it. David spared Saul a few chapters ago, and now here in chapter 26, he's going to spare him again. It is deja vu. 
which is a French expression, maybe you know this, a French expression that literally means already seen. And it might have felt that way for David as he endured this experience. It feels that way a little bit for us as we're reading about it. It's deja vu, or as Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. Olivia Rodrigo just came out with a song called Deja Vu. If you're more old school, you might prefer Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And the song by that same title, in which they sing, It feels like I've been here before. We have all been here before. Here in chapter 26, David spares Saul again. And in fact, the two stories bear so many points of similarity that some Bible scholars have gone so far as to say that it really only happened once, and what we've got in the Bible are two different accounts of it. Some of them say the same sort of thing about the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 in the Gospels. There's no reason to come to that conclusion. It's perfectly plausible that David spared Saul, and then not too long after that, he spared him again. And it is a very different circumstance this time. There's no reason to believe that that couldn't have happened. Quite to the contrary, and this is something that we're going to reflect upon after we've, we've taken a look at the story, it's spiritually valuable for us to notice that David honored God like this again just like he did not too long ago. That, that very fact, that's telling. That's instructive. And we ought to be instructed by it. We ought to learn from it. And so, by God's grace, we will. Geography here, we're still down in the territory of the, the tribe of Judah. In chapter 26, we're still down south. For that matter, here's another detail in the story that makes it feel like another story we've read before. Remember back in chapter 23, it was the Ziphites down south. It was the Ziphites who told Saul, David's down here, come and get him. And remember, David even wrote a psalm about that. He said, strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves, Psalm 54. Well, here in chapter 26... They do it again, the Ziphites. Once again, they they notify Saul, David's down here in our territory, come and get him. So take a look at verse 1, and we'll make our way. Verse 1, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose. And went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, 
with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. A deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. It certainly would have been unusual for an entire encampment, including seasoned soldiers, to fall asleep so soundly like this at a time when they would have known that alertness was paramount, unusual to say the least. And yet that's what the Lord has brought to pass here. And the fact that we're told that, that it's put that way, it reminds us that the Lord is governing these circumstances. The Lord is directing this whole situation. It was the Lord's will that Saul be vulnerable like this. And it was also the Lord's will that David hold back his hand again when Saul is vulnerable like this instead of striking him down. So the Lord is bringing all of these things to pass. Now, verse 13. Let's keep going. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So David proves just how close they were able to get. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. 
And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So here is David again making his case in Saul's hearing. Notice verse 19 especially. Look at verse 19 again. He says, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. David is willing to open himself up to to be examined, to be scrutinized. He says, in effect, Saul, if you're chasing after me because the Lord is chastising me for something that I've done, I want to know it. And by sacrifice, I want to get right with the Lord. I want to make it right. No doubt David's confident, and rightly so, that that's not the case. But still, David's not above saying, I'm willing to submit myself to the judgment of God. And then notice how he goes on. Again, verse 19. He says, if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. That's how much the, the land, the territory of Israel on the map meant to David. That's how significant it was to David that he'd been forced on the run, and at times to run to seek refuge beyond the territory of Israel. That land was the heritage of the Lord. That was the one place on the map where the Lord's people worshipped him. So for David to be forced on the run like this, it was as if other people were saying to him, we don't care if you end up having to worship other gods. David's not saying he's actually going to worship other gods, but he's saying... That's what this amounts to. That's how David looked at it. As a worshiper of God, that's how much this mattered to him. That that he was being forced on the run into the lands of other gods. Where his God, the true God, was not known. And was not fully worshipped. That's what this meant to him. And that's why he puts it the way that he does. So David makes his case. And Saul replies. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. 
Let one of the young men come over and take it. Saul is saying, David, come back. And David's saying, no. No, you send one of your men to come get these things. David goes on, verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. So that's what we've got here in chapter 26. That's what unfolds. Now we ask ourselves that important weekly question, which is, what do we take from this? What do do we learn from it now that we've seen what unfolds here? I want to highlight three lessons for us this morning. The first is this. Obedience shines even more brightly when you stick with it. Obedience shines even more brightly when you stick with it. And I say that because of what we noticed at the outset here this morning, which is that 26, chapter 26, feels an awful lot like chapter 24. The obedience and the restraint that David has to exhibit here when he has the chance to kill Saul, who's been trying to kill him, it does feel like a kind of biblical deja vu. We have all been here before, haven't we? Just two chapters ago. And to, to feel the force of this, Think about this chapter compared to chapter 24 the first time. Remember what we saw back in chapter 24? Saul's in that cave. David has the chance to strike him dead, but he doesn't. Remember what we saw back then. One, the temptation was there because the circumstance presented itself. Two... David's own men are saying it's God's will that you kill him. And three, David must have been exhausted. A a potent combination, a potent temptation. Well, this time, here in chapter 26, it's worse. And by that I mean the temptation that David is facing is even more fierce precisely because this is the second time. It's not exactly the same. In a sense, we can say, we have not been here before. This is round two. This is worse. And I say that because this time, chapter 26, it's everything that we saw last time and more. Once again, the temptation is there because the circumstance presents itself. And once again, now it's Abishai who's saying, it's the Lord's will that you kill him. This is God's promise being fulfilled. And once again, David must have been exhausted, even more so, because he's been on the run ever since. But now we can add one more piece on top of what we saw last time. This time, 
David might have been tempted to think to himself, I could have killed him before, but I didn't. And look what it got me. He's still hunting me. Even though Saul said all of those nice things to me last time after I spared his life, said all of those true and godly things about how I was in the right and he was in the wrong and I was destined to reign, he's still hunting me. See, that's the piece that we add this time. You know the old expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, if it happens a second time, I've got nobody to blame but myself because clearly I didn't learn the first time. And even if that thought process isn't going through David's mind, that temptation is there for him to think, I could have killed him last time, but I didn't. And what did it get me? He's still hunting me down. David might have said, if you think I'm going to hold back my hand twice, I'm not that stupid. We don't know what Abishai's reaction was when David made it clear that he wasn't going to kill Saul. The Bible doesn't tell us. But you can easily imagine somebody rolling their eyes and saying, Are you kidding me? You're still not going to kill him. You You didn't kill him back in the cave, and how'd that work out? And you're telling me you're still not going to kill him. We can even invoke that Christian speak that I referred to last time. David, God has opened a door for you, and now he's opened it twice. David, get a clue, get a message. This is clearly God's will that you strike him down. Like one of those screen doors that keeps blowing open because it won't latch. David, God keeps opening this door for you. He's opened it twice now, like Gideon in the book of Judges with his fleece. Twice. What more do you need? David, get the message. But David obeyed again. In spite of everything that might have made him think, okay, now's the time. Now's my chance. Now it's God's will. By God's grace, David obeyed God again. You talk about persevering obedience. And so the the reason it shines even more brightly is that it speaks volumes about a person's character. To spare Saul the first time was remarkable enough. It was. But to spare him a second time, that's when it hits you even harder, that this is who David really is deep down. Speaks volumes about his character, precisely because, as we've just noticed, in a sense the temptation would have been more intense. This, this is David displaying who he really is. And, and we've got to notice here, as we, we take a, a big biblical step back, David points us forward to Christ here. Points us forward to Christ, who was the second Adam. Think back to, to the book of Genesis and the first Adam. The first Adam was called to obey and to persevere in obedience, and he didn't. Adam didn't make it all the way to the finish line that God called him to run to. But the second Adam did. 
Jesus did. Jesus obeyed and he persevered in it. Jesus loved his father with heart and soul and mind and strength. And he loved him that way over and over again. And it showed when Jesus faced the same sorts of temptations over and over again. And if anything, the temptations would have been more intense with the passing of time. And with his coming nearer to the cross. How many times did Jesus have to resist the temptation to lash out at his opponents? Or to give up on his clueless disciples? Or to bail out on the prospect of the cross over and over again? But he didn't. Jesus obeyed and he persevered in it. He persevered in it to the end. So you see... It's true not just of David, but of great David's greater son. The obedience of Jesus shone even more brightly because he stuck with it to the end. And brothers and sisters, now it's that Jesus who calls us to that same persevering, we might even say repeating, obedience. And not only does he call us to it, But this is very good news. He also strengthens us for it. And that is good news. That is vital news. It could be this morning, Christian, that you are feeling worn out and worn down. Because it feels like you keep coming up against the same temptation. Maybe it's something in you. Some weakness inside of you that you can't seem to shake. So that it practically feels like a part of you and you, you take it with you wherever you go. Maybe it's some situation at work and you face that situation every day when you go into work or when you zoom into work. Maybe it's someone in your life and that person's not going anywhere. Whatever it might be, whoever it might be. It's over and over again. It's day after day and you're feeling worn out and worn down when you feel that way. Look to Christ. Look to the son of David who in this respect was even more gloriously like his father David. Look to him for an example, yes. But also look to Jesus for strength because he gives that as well. So that first lesson this morning, obedience shines even more brightly when you stick with it. Now here's a second that we can learn from this chapter, that we can learn from David's testimony in it. And the second lesson is the Lord is going to make everything right. The Lord is going to make everything right in the end. And and here especially, look again at verse 10. This is when Abishai is is urging that David permit him to take Saul's own spear and strike him down with it. Look at verse 10. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David knows that if Saul's going to fall, 
The Lord has any number of ways that the Lord himself can bring that about. The Lord does not need David to sin to force the issue. The Lord has his ordinary ways. The Lord has his extraordinary ways. He does not need David to resort to wicked ways. And David gets that. And it's that conviction that, that fortifies him in the face of this temptation. Now, just to be clear here, and this will prepare us for what we're going to see a few chapters from now, it's certainly true that the Lord in his sovereignty sometimes uses human wickedness to accomplish his purposes, including, as we'll see, the purpose of bringing Saul down. At the end of the book, when, when Saul falls, how, how does he come to his end? Well, the Philistines attack, and Saul falls upon his own sword. And we're, we're not defending any of that. So it's true that the Lord, in his sovereignty, sometimes uses human sin to accomplish his purposes, including bringing about justice in some way or rescue in some way. But that does not entitle us to sin. As if we have the liberty to take outcomes upon ourselves by any means necessary. As if that were a guiding principle of our own conduct. It is not. We leave it to the Lord in the face of a temptation like that. And it's also true Sometimes by our obedience, we are the instruments of God bringing about earthly justice in some way. There's a handy comparison here in 1 Samuel. When David squared off against Goliath, David didn't drop his stone and his sling and say, God will do it. No, he slung, and then he grabbed that big sword and he finished him off. But that was obedience. That was David's calling in that moment, and he knew it. That's the difference. Taking matters into his own hands with Saul would have been disobedient. And David knew it. And so he left it to the Lord. Because he knew that the Lord didn't need David to sin, to force the issue. And in the face of temptations like those, we follow David's lead. We leave it to the Lord. Remember what I read for us last Sunday, these passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot will slip. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is the Lord's. Or Proverbs 20, where it says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. And David understood that, even as he thought about Saul who was relentlessly hunting him down, even after he claimed to know better. David knew better. And think about it. Surely one of the reasons that David understands that, as well as he does here in chapter 26, is what he just went through with Nabal. The whole episode last week in chapter 25... The whole episode with Nabal, it was worthy of his name. The name meant foolish. That would have driven it home for David. 
that the Lord is perfectly willing and able to bring about justice and salvation without his people having to resort to sin in order to do it themselves. David has just seen that. David held back his hand from striking Nabal dead in a wicked way, and then right away the Lord strikes Nabal dead in his own divine way. So this morning when David says, if the Lord wants, he can strike Saul dead, David says that as a man who practically just watched it happen. It's not that David didn't know that before. He did, that the Lord's willing and able to work justice and rescue without his people resorting to sin. David knew that before. It's one of the reasons why he didn't strike Saul dead the first time. This isn't a brand new lesson for him. It's just that the whole episode with Nabal would have, would have driven it home in a most vivid way. And so David is all the more persuaded now. The Lord's going to make everything right. And we ought to be persuaded of the same thing. As I said last week, it could be that you're facing one of those situations right now or you faced one not too long ago, or you're going to someday down the road. One of those situations in which you've been wronged in some way. And the temptation is fierce to lash out and strike back and have your vengeance, especially if it's happened before and it feels like deja vu. Especially if it's round two, or three, or four, and you're really wearing out. In those moments, you remember your Savior. 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So whatever it is that you're facing that won't let go, if it's the Lord's will that the person who has wronged you repent of it, then the Lord will bring that about. And you don't have to resort to desperate, sinful measures to force the issue. And by the same token, if it's the Lord's will that the person who's wronged you receive some kind of justice for what they did, the Lord will bring that about as well. And we can say the same thing. You do not have to resort to desperate, sinful measures to force it. The Lord is going to make everything right. So that's a second lesson for us to grab onto today. And here's a third. Here's one more. It is this truth, short and sweet. The Lord is our deliverer. The Lord is our deliverer. And here I want you to look again at verse 23. 23 and 24. Here's David speaking now to Saul. He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Obviously, that's not saying that salvation itself is a matter of currying God's favor 
with our own righteousness and faithfulness. No, salvation is by grace from start to finish. And yet it's the genius, it's the brilliance of the way salvation works by grace that God still finds a way to honor the service that his servants render. God still finds a way to acknowledge and to crown the righteousness and the faithfulness that his people put on display. Whether it's bringing about some blessing for them in this life or some honor in the life to come, God will make sure of it. The righteousness of his people does not go unnoticed in heaven, and God will make sure that in some way or another it's noticed by everybody else as well. And he'll do so in a way that fits, in a way that matches, in a way that makes you say it's perfect. The honor will match the way we honored him. And that's why David can say here, I look to the Lord to be my deliverer. He's certainly not going to place his trust in Saul. David's seen way too much to make that mistake. After all of this, David's too godly to lapse into that, to place his trust in Saul. David says, in effect, I look to the Lord to be my deliverer. David knows where he's got to look for rescue, and it's not on earth. And brothers and sisters, this is a truth for us today as well. The Lord is our deliverer. Whatever it is this morning that you're up against, whatever it is that you feel like you have to be delivered from, it it could be some situation that is positively intractable. It could be someone who won't give you peace. It could be some sin that won't let go. Or, big picture, it could simply be the realities of sin and misery in this age. Whatever it is, the Lord is your deliverer. And you look to him. That doesn't mean that you don't get involved in trying to make things better. It could be that there's work for you to do, steps for you to take. Could be that there are earthly things that need to happen and you hope and pray that they do. But ultimately, transcending all of that earthly cause and effect, including your own own steps and actions, ultimately you don't place your trust, your hope, your confidence in your actions and other people's reactions and earthly developments. Whether it's someone whose words you know you cannot trust anymore, like Saul, or someone whose words you do trust, even from that person you lift your gaze and you look to the Lord. Like the psalmist in Psalm 121, he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You look up, you lift your gaze. You look to the Lord who reigns over all things. And ultimately, what you look to him for is the the capital D deliverance that will be your rich welcome into the age to come. Not just the, the resolution of some difficult situation or the improvement of a relationship or anything like that. Ultimately, 
what you look to him for is that deliverance that is your entrance into the age to come. That's why I wanted to go to 2 Timothy in our service this morning. That was our New Testament reading, 2 Timothy 4. Paul, in his own way, kind of like David, Paul was regularly opposed and hounded and and hunted and on the run. And Paul, in his own way, he, he took steps to make things right, and he invoked his rights, and he answered his opponents, and all of that. He didn't just let go and let God. But ultimately, Paul looked to the Lord, and he did so with his eyes on the age to come. 2 Timothy 4, as he looks back upon his life and ministry, finally he looks forward and he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, there's Paul looking up. Paul named names in that passage of some people that he could trust. Somebody couldn't, but somebody could, who were faithful servants. And yet, even from those folks, he lifted his gaze and looked to the Lord, confident that the Lord would deliver him. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Church tradition has it that Paul was martyred by Nero. That Nero put him to death, along with many others. Unlike David, who who died of, quote-unquote, natural causes. In other words, church tradition has it that God did not rescue Paul from Nero. That may be true, that, that may not be true, we don't know. We don't have a word from the Lord on that. But even if it was true, even if that's how Paul died... Ultimately, Nero couldn't touch him. And if Nero did put him to death, then that's how God delivered Paul. Delivered from the sin and misery of this age and welcomed him into the age to come. Brought him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Friends, the Lord is our deliverer too. So let's remember to look up And look to him. And when we do, we will certainly find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for your grace at work in our lives. And we have known it. To strengthen us in the face of temptation that we might honor you with a persevering obedience even in the face of temptations that it seems won't let us go. We trust in you this morning that you will make all things right in the end. We trust in you this morning. We look to you that you are our deliverer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.